Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta chef Asha Gomez has traveled widely and experienced various cultures by way of food. She also believes we can take a flavorful voyage from the comfort of our home kitchen. Later this hour, Asha Gomez will tell us about her recent book, I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. First, Toni Morrison said, if you can't find the book you want to read, then you must write it. Robert Jones Jr. has done just that with his novel, The Prophets written with lyricism that honors the style of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. The author joins us now via Zoom. Robert Jones, Jr., welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. A tender, beautiful love story is central to this novel. How is the story of Isaiah and Samuel, your response to Toni Morrison's encouragement? Yes, it is indeed. And the reason Isaiah and Samuel exist is because when I was an undergrad, I was a Africana studies minor. I majored in creative writing and I read so many fabulous works by wonderful black authors from slave narratives to books on race theory. And something struck me as odd, which was prior to the Harlem Renaissance, there were never any mention of any black queer figures. And I, I wanted to address that in some way. So I did a ton of research and the only references I could ever find prior to Harlem Renaissance time was in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, which is a slave narrative, where she, in one sentence, very briefly, describes the assault of a male slave by a slave master. And then in Toni Morrison's Beloved, the character Paul D is sexually assaulted by an overseer. And from those observations came a question, what about love? 
And Samuel was born first and then Isaiah from that one question. Theirs is a love story for the ages. And in fact, that love story reminded me of the love story at the center of If Beale Street Could Talk. Toni Morrison, James Baldwin. This is a dynamic duo, to put it mildly. And in addition to your tributes to them, there are things that pop up which I was hoping you would discuss, such as the significance of the color blue. I wondered if that was in any way a reference to the bluest eye. Perhaps subconsciously, but more at the forefront of my mind in using the color blue was the idea of the blues. So a combination of the dynamic duo, whether it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. And in addition, the, the bluesy voice, because when I was writing this book, I listened to a lot of old gospel music, so stuff by like Mahalia Jackson. And I also listened to very old blues, so I was listening to a lot of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And those voices imbue a type of secret, illicit joy, but also a sorrow that the color blue matches. And so perhaps somewhere inside me, that message took hold. And here I was writing all of these different types of blues, whether it's the color of the flowers or the color of the ceremonial garb of some of the people in the African chapters, blue found its way in there. Hmm. Interwoven with the story of Isaiah and Samuel are sections written in the voices of seven ancestors. I'm curious about the structure of the novel. Would you talk about how you titled chapters after books of the Bible but they don't exactly correspond to the narratives we know? When I was in the process of writing, I was in an early draft and I keep a, a notepad and a pen by my bed in the event that something comes to me and I have to write it down because I'll never remember it in the morning, no matter how many times I told myself, just say it out loud, you'll remember it. I never do. So one morning, it was maybe two or three in the morning, I woke up out of a dream and I wrote down something on a pad and I don't even remember what it was that I wrote down. It was in the dark. I scribbled it out and went back to sleep. When I woke up the next morning and took my pad back to my home office to look at what I'd written and, and enter it in, there was a line that said, you do not yet know us. And I thought, but that's a direct address. That's not going with anything that I have previously written. And from that, I said, well, maybe there needs to be chapters that have a direct address, but who would be, who would be talking? Who, who would have the right to talk directly to the reader or directly to me or directly to the other characters in this way? And the answer to that was only the ancestors would have that right. And from that, one of the chapters that I had written in the ancestral voice, they said, this is 
not the beginning, but this is where we shall begin. That was a question I kept asking myself, well, where shall we begin? And that's when I was led to talk about chapters that take place in pre-colonial Africa. And once I wrote those chapters that took place in pre-colonial Africa, I realized there is a distinction between this Africanist point of view and this Western point of view. And how can I play up that distinction? And one of the ways was in naming and in understanding that the rift that occurs between what we were in these African societies and what we were when we were enslaved was Christianity. And I realized by titling these chapters by books of the Bible, and sometimes not by books of the Bible, but biblical concepts, really impacted the way in which I approached writing those particular chapters, how Christianity and spirituality informed each of those chapters, and how in some ways the characters did and did not correspond. Either they subverted the biblical text or they followed the biblical text upon being named. To say that's multi-layered, again, is putting it mildly. One of the most striking aspects of the novel is how you convey the enslaved people's determination to hold on to or even try to know about their past. Isaiah asks Samuel if he ever wonders where his mother might be and says, maybe when you look in the river, her face is what you see. And then Isaiah tells Samuel about a memory of reaching out for his mother and father and wonders I'm quoting here, if he is not just reaching for his mam and pappy, but also for all those faded people who stood behind them, whose names, too, were lost forever, whose blood nourished the ground and haunted it. Would you please tell us about the importance of a connection to the past for these characters? It is, quite frankly, the yearning for connection that all descendants of enslaved people feel. Because we were cut off from the thing that is the origin of our thing. And I think Toni Morrison was the one that said, all orf orphans are insatiable. And I'm not sure if that's blatantly true, but I do know that when you are someone who you don't know who your ancestors were, you can only guess at it because your ancestors didn't have birth certificates. They were listed as property along with animals and furniture in records kept by plantation owners. You long to know more about these people who withstood so that you could be here. It, it is overwhelming to think about the fact that my ancestors suffered untold brutality and survived it just so that I could be here writing this book today. I am in awe of that. I feel a tremendous responsibility for that. And I imagined 
that these characters who were in this lost place, enduring these unspeakable acts, only wondered and fantasized and hoped that they could find when they escaped it, where they actually belonged. And the first step to that is to wonder, where are my parents who loved me, who brought me here, who I was snatched from? And that's, that's where Samuel and Isaiah are. But it's also kind of frightening because to think about it and then to not know or to know that you may never receive an answer to that question is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to read, but we must. I was hoping you would read some passages. I asked him, the old dog voices, about you. They say you write proud, on your way to becoming a man yourself. Got a lot of your people in you, but don't know it yet. And quick, maybe too quick for your own good. I surprised you still living. I asked them, I say, can you take a message to him? Tell him I remember every curl on his head and every fold on his body down to the creases between his toes. Tell him not even the whip can remedy that. Oh. Okay, so I started crying on page four. I have a soaked copy of the prophets in front of me, Robert. I'm so sorry. So, no, don't be. It's, it's marvelous. What can you tell us about blood memory? Blood memory is a concept that I was introduced to in my studies in Africana studies at Brooklyn College as an undergrad, where um, it is sort of like this part mystical, part real idea that we actually carry the memories of our ancestors passed down to us through our very blood, that our cells themselves hold on to the memories that we think have been lost to time. That if we're, we are still and we are quiet in our meditative spaces, we can actually remember things that did not happen to us, but happened to these ancestors that they willed into their bodies and passed down to us such that we will always know. That is blood memory. And in fact, at one point you write, who knew blood could talk? The ancestors say, return to memory when you are filled with doubt. Is this what they are referring to? Yes. And they also say, but memory is not enough. And that is their way of saying, you now in this new place must do additional things to ensure that we are not forgotten. You must speak, you must write down, you must do. Because memory, while that is the thing that we gave to you, we realize it is not enough. Samuel and Isaiah first encounter each other as children. How would you describe each of them? Samuel is a much more rugged individual. He is a little bit more angry a little bit more aggressive, a little bit 
more uncomfortable with the intense love he feels for Isaiah. Isaiah, on the other hand, is, although chained, utterly free. He finds in his love for Samuel the ultimate liberation. He loves without, without fear. He loves without limit. And his intimacy is deep. There is no shame with Isaiah. There is, he doesn't even understand the concept of shame. And the two of them together, as Maggie calls them, the two of them represent this fraught, but highly f passionate and nigh unbreakable bond. And I just wanted to examine the complications and the deep intimacy of the two with those sort of, they, they're sort of the yin and yang of each other. And they, they are in many ways opposites, but could not function without each other. Yeah. Samuel emanated strength, yet detachment from others, not from Isaiah. And Isaiah has this soothing presence. He smiles. He was sweet with a friend's baby. Though later you write, it was the curse of the soft ones to suffer in all but silence. So his ability to articulate, in fact, makes him feel remorse even greater. Yes. Isn't that the way of the world? We, we live in such a fraught, often hard and violent world, and it's those who feel um, the, the most empathetic among us that suffer the most. We see and feel other people's pain in addition to our own. And that is hard. That's a hard existence to live in a world that can be so callous. Author Robert Jones Jr. talking about his novel, The Prophets. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. My guest is the author Robert Jones, Jr. His novel, The Prophets, is set in 1850, a love story about two enslaved men on a Mississippi plantation. The characters are richly drawn, and I was enthralled with Maggie, here, Robert Jones explains the role of Maggie in the prophets. Everyone who
who has read this book tells me that Maggie is their favorite. Maggie is not just the maternal, not just the mystical, but also the, the moral core of this novel, I think. She does things for herself first, but then she battles that with the love she feels for others. So there's, there's this tug of war within her. She hates being in the kitchen to cook for people who abuse her. So she takes small pieces of vengeance and she hates the idea of children, black children being born on a plantation because she knows what they're about to endure. And yet in the two of them, her heart opens against her will. She is also crucial in the protection of certain people. I don't wanna give much away on this plantation. And she is also crucial because she is one of the few that remember the old ways and is not wrapped by the, the new ways. And she is also the one that unites the women so that they too can remember the old ways. She is my favorite character, although I love Samuel and Isaiah. Mackie said about Samuel and Isaiah's relationship that it was something old from the other time. And this seems a good time to talk about the story of King Akusa. King Akusa may be, at least at this current moment, my favorite character and the one that I would most like to return to in, in some other form in, or in some other day. But it was my research into pre-colonial Africa that led me to including these sorts of chapters in The Prophets because what I learned most importantly through oral histories, so for example, Esther Arma, who is an artist activist from Ghana, informed us that because we have this sense among Black communities that homosexuality or queerness or whatever name we wish to use for it is something that's the result of trauma, the result of European colonialism that was something not natural to the African landscape. But that is patently false. As Arma tells us, if you asked her grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would say, I don't know. But if you described what you meant by homosexuality, they'd say, oh, yes, that is such and such and such and such who are in love with each other. We have no term to separate it because it is just love or it is just sex. Because in her tribes, love and sex were, were like land. There were no boundaries. And so I wanted to talk about how in some African societies, gender was seen as something wholly different from how we think of it in, in Western societies. That queerness was a normal part of the landscape that came right up out of nature, not something to be thought of as sinful as um, would later be interpreted with Christian missionaries. And so King Akusa and her tribe and her society is me bringing in those elements, those factual elements, but giving them a fantastical sort of rendition. And what I found is what you see in these chapters that 
King had no gender attachment to it. It just meant leader. And whatever the sex of the person who occupied that position is, is King. And so King Akusa is a woman. In fact, you write, girl is the beginning, everything else determined by soul. And because King Akusa believes fierceness should always be tempered with kindness, she invites the visitors she receives. A white man, Brother Gabriel, accompanied by neighboring villagers. She invites them to attend a grand celebration, a wedding of two young men. What does this portion of the story reveal, Robert? Are these two young men, Kosi and Ilua, the earlier incarnation of Samuel and Isaiah? I'm sure that it could be interpreted that way. But from the author behind the curtain, it was really me trying to reveal a concept that I learned in my research from one of the tribes, I believe they're called the Dagara tribe, where queer men were considered guardians of the gates, of the spiritual gates. And they were given a special place in the society. They were considered wiser and they were more revered, almost royalty, but not quite. And Kosai and Alewa are representative of that concept, of that celebratory look at queer men in this pre-colonial African society, where in some of these societies, there were ceremonies that what we call weddings, they were not precisely weddings, they were wedded in a particular way, but it wasn't a wedding like we think of it in terms of matrimony. And I wanted to represent that as contrast to how Samuel and Isaiah's love is looked at with skepticism and um, revulsion. And how even in modern times, the idea of gay marriage is looked upon as unbiblical or ungodly. At a terrible moment later in the story, the character of Sarah reflects, it seemed that it had always fallen upon the women to be the head or the heart, to throw the first spear, to shoot the first arrow to clear the first path, to live the first life. Robert, I must tell you, Stacey Abrams came to mind when I read that passage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) About being the head or the heart, although she would never pick up a weapon other than arming people to go out and vote, if there is such a metaphor for that. Were you being contemporary in your regard for women there? That is really a good question. I guess to some sense, I was being contemporary in that I think about people like Shirley Chisholm and the aforementioned Stacey Abrams and all of the Black women in Georgia who who were doing that deep dive work. I think about people like Ava DuVernay. I, I think about people like Janet Jackson Um, I think about all of these Black women who innovate and endure, but also I was thinking about something old. And that's how these stories of of Black women's resistance are often erased from the the master narrative, as Toni Morrison would put it. 
where we don't have very many stories other than, you know, Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth that really delve into the role Black women played in the liberation of Black people in this country. And I wanted to pay homage to that. And I wanted to honor that by talking about how so often it is, as Ella Baker once put it, the charismatic masculine patriarch who is afforded the leadership role or, or is thought of as the person that we should listen to and who we should follow. And it's never the woman that we think about in that, in that sort of way, no matter how genius, no matter how much of a strategist, no matter how brilliant she is. And I wanted to kind of turn the tables a bit and to pay honor to those women who in my own life, the elder women in my family who have paved the way. Hearing about Christianity from Brother Gabriel is difficult for King Akusa to understand. Gabriel can't comprehend same-sex love, tells her it's sodomy, and heaven seems strange to King Akusa. She says, what an unusual place that doesn't open its gates for its own guard. How do you address the spiritual beliefs carried from African lands in contrast to Christianity in the prophets? What I realized about the pre-colonial spiritual ideas is that they were closely tied to family that these godlike figures, uh, for lack of, of, of a better term, were not hovering over these pre-colonial Africans in a way that Jehovah hovers over modern day people. Here in, in these pre-colonial African societies, these are people that you have already loved, that have loved you, who cannot wait to embrace you again. To, to sit you down at the table and, and, and break bread. These are not angry, giant sky deities who hold lightning in their palm and wish to do you harm if you don't do everything as they say, precisely as they say, hidden under the superficial cover of choice. There is a distinctly different manner about spirituality between pre-colonial African societies and Western societies in that the goal isn't punishment in pre-colonial African societies, it's enlightenment. Whereas Western societies and Western religions, there always seems to be this central component of punishment. Hmm. This would be the time to introduce the character Amos, an older enslaved man on the plantation, a complex character, and at least for me, very easy to dislike. What is his attitude towards Samuel and Isaiah? Actually, he loves them, but he is frustrated because he's put in a very precarious position. He has to get them to not be what they are in order to save someone else. That's that's all I will reveal about that. Um, and he's frustrated by the fact that they won't give up their individualism for the group. He understands in a way, that's the tragedy, 
that he's going to have to be the one to destroy what even he himself believes is beautiful. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the author Robert Jones Jr. about his novel, The Prophets. Would you talk about your use of myth and reality in The Prophets? Absolutely. You know, when I think about fiction, I think about something that Toni Morrison said about it. She said, fiction is not fact, but it is truth. And that helped to free me in telling this story in a way that wasn't necessarily held by reality. Like I, I didn't necessarily have to ensure, I have to make sure that this, this, this represents corporeal reality, otherwise I'd lose the reader. I'm able to expand beyond the limits of reality to reveal something that, that you feel in your gut is true. So yes, perhaps this is magical realism, and I'm certain that Morrison's influence and even the influence of Marquez plays a role in, in some of how I decided to write this, how I decided to combine myth and reality. And the way that myth often functions in this book is it's to give you a reprieve from the dogged, brutal reality of it. It is to allow the characters flights of fancy so that they can, too, become fuller, more realized characters outside of the, of the violence, that they can have a kind of beauty and a respite from it, a reprieve, and something to dream about. It was necessary that they had something to dream about. Yeah, because your readers bear witness to a vivid depiction of the horrific conditions on the slave ship and the plantation. You also convey insight to the enslaved psyche. For example, when Maggie realizes, what chance did she have against that kind of power removed as she was from the land where she should have been born and the people she should have been born to. Robert, what informs the way you depict the characters' thoughts and feelings to their situation? You know, a lot of it is from my own family's oral and discovered history. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, Ruby, her youngest brother, Herbert, my great uncle, Herbert, did our family tree and discovered or uncovered a beautiful tradition that I, I am a part of and I didn't even know. All of the firstborn boys in my family are named Robert. And I, I was not sure why. It was because the, the very first ancestor, Robert, died on a passage from England to the United States to, to Savannah, where, where my father's family is from. And in tribute, his younger brother named his first son Robert, and every firstborn boy down to me is named Robert. That gives me a tremendous sense of responsibility about thinking about what that first Robert endured. 
so such that he left such an impression that his brother said, I am going to name my firstborn son Robert, told his son that he must name his first son, born son Robert, all the way down to my father and to, then to me. Mercy, have mercy. I can't help but think about that pain, that joy, all of that richness of, of, of family. And when I, I write about these characters, I, I listen to them. I am their witnesses. I am writing down their testimonies. And so I must pay the utmost respect. I must use the best active listening I know how. And I must write down whatever I hear, whether it is beautiful or whether it is ugly, as long as it is true. And I think in that it renders them full and rich and dimensional. Nearing the end of the prophets, we come to a chapter titled Numbers. It's barely a page and a half long, but extremely dense in content. Please explain what follows the opening sentence, We are the seven. We are the seven sent to watch over you. What is required of you is to look up and remember the star. I'm dealing with here, in some metaphorical way, stories that my maternal grandfather, Alfred, used to tell me when I was a kid. He was um, almost a lifelong member of the Nation of Islam. He died when he was 96 in, in the year 2013. And he used to tell me these stories about Egypt and the pyramids and how they lined up with stars and how we built those pyramids using ancient mathematics in ways that not even modern societies can understand how to recreate. And that's just me playing with those concepts of blackness as powerful, blackness as engineer, blackness as enduring, and also paying homage to who those ancestors are, the, the seven, in particular, as they relate to this novel. I don't want to reveal for the readers who these seven are, but they should figure it out by the time they get to this chapter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that is them being playful with sort of old Black cultural symbolism. Yeah. Because of its setting in time and place, this story is not easy to read. Yet there's something very uplifting about how the life force prevails in the prophets. Would you please read the passage beginning, His people had that in them. His people had that in them more than Paul's, to abide more, rejoice more, revere more, surrender more climb on top of a golden pyre and burn more. He had seen it in the circle of trees, the way his people swayed, the way they rocked, the way they offered themselves up willingly to the cloudy sky above, and the way they sang in a harmony that wasn't rehearsed because people who shared the same bitter lot connected in ways unseen by nature. Robert Jones, Jr. Thank you very much. Lois, thank you so much for having me. This has been a complete and utter joy. Author Robert Jones, Jr.
His critically acclaimed novel is The Prophets. India has long been associated with vibrant colors. Its festivals, traditional fashion, interior design, and architecture all display a wide range of vivid colors. That celebration of brilliant colors also extends to Indian food, as Chef Asha Gomez conveys in her new book, I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. This chef is with us now via Zoom. Asha Gomez, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. Now, the title of this new book is very enticing. Please tell us, how do you cook in color? How do you not cook in color? (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, cooking is really, it's such a visual aesthetic first, isn't it? So my menu happens at a market first. I never plan a menu and go to the market. I literally go to the market, see what's available, what's fresh. But it's also just the color of what we see globally when it comes to globally inspired food. I Cook in Color is such a love story to my family, my friends, and especially my son. It's a reflection on all the countries that we've traveled to, all the amazing kitchens that I've been fortunate enough to cook in. And it, it kind of takes me out of that box, Lewis. You know, as a, as a first-generation immigrant chef, I'm generally boxed into cooking the cuisine of my ancestral kitchen, which is my mother's kitchen or my grandmother's kitchen. Meanwhile, I left India 35 years ago. I've called the U.S. home now for 35 years. I've traveled the world over, eaten in kitchens around the world. And I Cook in Color is really a reflection of, of, of it's the sum total of my life experiences and what I put on a plate. Indeed. Your previous cookbook, My Two Souths, contains recipes that combine the influence of Kerala, your native town in southern India, and your adopted home of Atlanta. What other influences specifically do we encounter in this new collection of recipes? So uh, I Cook in Color is very much a reflection of how I cook in my kitchen today. My kitchen is very globally inspired. You know, on any given night, I could be in Thailand making a Thai papaya salad. I could be in the south of France. I could be in Rome, Italy, where I learned how to make a quail ragu, or my mother's kitchen in the south of India making a fish head curry, or here in my kitchen in the American South. And so it really is a reflection of how I cook today. And my kitchen is very globally inspired. Mm -hmm. You're right that eating the rainbow is good for our health. How so? So I think just the vibrance of color that's all around us, first of all, the freshness of everything that you get when you're eating things that, you know, a quick stir fry or great salads. I have great salad recipes in the cookbook as well. It's just, you know, juices that you can have. It makes you feel good. I mean, 
not just from a visual perspective, but I think drinking and eating color makes you feel good. The book cover illustration is a gorgeous display of vegetables. Is this complicated to make? Not the cover. It's not. It's roasting vegetables. I tell people all the time, you give me a vegetable, I'm probably going to find a way to roast it. So it's so simple, you know, putting a platter, especially like this time of year, with all the amazing pumpkins and squashes that we have in season right now. It's literally cut things up, put it on a sheet pan, and you can spice each individual vegetable with you know, spice it up differently. Like on one, I will put cardamom and honey. On another one, I'll do black pepper. On another one, I'll crush some cumin. And it all just goes onto a sheet pan and roast for a few minutes. And you have a showstopper on your table that's delicious and healthy and good for you. Mm. Now, the recipes range from those you describe as easy to very sophisticated. Did you have in mind a particular level of expertise for readers of this cookbook? You know, Louis, when I wrote my first cookbook, I Cook in Color, I wasn't very well versed in writing recipes. And I think so much of the way I approached my two souths was through the lens of a restaurant chef. And I think with I Cook in Color, I really honed into just being a home cook. And every recipe in I Cooking Color was tested and retested in my kitchen with my family, with my kid. And so I really kept in my mind's eye the home cook and the ease at which a home cook could make these recipes. And so for me, I Cooking Color, I think I became a better recipe writer just from experience of writing one cookbook already. And I think it's probably my best work yet because I try to simplify it as much as I possibly can based on how it is I like to cook at home on any given weeknight. I want it to be a one pot wonder, you know, everything going into one dish and simplifying things. So I feel the recipes may be just a, that much easier in eye cooking color than maybe they were in My Two Souths. I mean, My Two Souths is a brilliant cookbook too, but I feel like eye cooking color is more relatable because I changed as a writer and how I wrote a recipe during this process. I think I encountered an example of how you coax us away from feeling intimidated in the entry for wild boar and poke salad lasagna. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you, Asha, it helped me that you added a reference to the song Poke Salad Annie because that was one of my favorite songs as a teenager. Would you talk about how you adapted this recipe for the less experienced cook. So, you know, if you can't find the poke, I mean, you can use so many other greens in this recipe. You could use collards if you want. You could use spinach if you want. You could really, there's a multitude of greens that you can use. And the entire cookbook, you know, I'm telling you, listen, it, take a recipe, use it as a foundation, 
and then take what's in your kitchen and have fun and play with it. Don't be intimidated. If, if a recipe calls for five ingredients and you have only four, it's still going to be delicious. You know, get creative, use something out of the box, just being inspired by the base recipe that you've been given. So that's a prime example of, you know, you can't find a particular green, use another green. It's going to be just as delicious. And what about the wild boar? So if you can't get wild boar, I mean, there's so many gaming meats that you can use. I mean, if you can't get boar, use pork. If you can't, if pork is not going to be good enough, use, if you want turkey, use turkey. You literally could substitute with any number of different meats that you want. Nice salmon salad and crying tiger grilled beef salad look gorgeous on the page, but those don't seem at all difficult to make. They're not. It's as simple as, you know, making a quick dressing at home, grilling it off, roasting it in the oven. And then, you know, with, with the knee salad, I, I talk about how my influence in my mother's kitchen has always been, you know, we finish dishes in Kerala, we temper oil with some mustard seeds and some curry leaves. It's usually just splattered on top of whatever it is that you have cooked. And so you have this gorgeous slab of salmon and you roast it and you pull it out and you temper some mustard oil on it and voila, you know, you have something that's so beautiful and it's easy and simple and it's it's decadent for like an afternoon with the ladies or an evening where you want to have a light dinner. So yes, and the same thing with the crying salad. It's all about making simple things that you're not used to. So you make a dressing that you're not otherwise used to making, or you make a Thai-inspired dressing like for the Thai, uh, for the beef salad. And it's the simple things that you can bring into your kitchen that are globally inspired that you might not otherwise be familiar with. But also in the book, write a lot about where you can get access to these things. I mean, in today's world, we're literally three days away from getting anything at our doorstep that we feel that we can't find. If you feel that you're in some part of the world where you can't find a particular ingredient. I mean, you look it up in three days, it can show up, show up at your doorstep. So I'm hoping that I've given enough resources for people to find the ingredients needed to make these dishes. Yes. I'm curious why the tiger is crying. He's not crying. It just sounded really beautiful. He's, <laughs> he, he's crying because he's crying tears of joy. It's so delicious. Oh. <laughs> now, you, you point out that Thai cooking is especially well suited to those with a busy lifestyle, yet it's also quite sumptuous and nutritious. What especially appeals to you about Thai cooking? You know, it's so rare that I see Thai cooking. I have a very dear friend. She's like my sister, Faye Poon, who's from Bangkok, Thailand. And I've learned so much from her and, you know, through her cooking influences in my kitchen. I've never used, seen her use a shred of oil on anything. Like literally all all her cooking starts off with water and just tons of herbs. You know, it's cilantro, cilantro root, it's palm sugar, it's lemon, it's lime, it's green chili, it's garlic, 
and it's always starts off so light but it's just full of herb and it's it's the thing with thai cuisine is you have tang you have heat you have sweet it's like this umami of flavors like your palate can experience everything in one dish yes and uh, i look forward to making that crying tiger grilled beef salad i'm glad the tiger isn't crying because <laughs> he's going extinct or anything like that <laughs> ultimately you write this book is about cognizant cooking how do you define that so for me this when i say cognizant cooking it's about being conscious right it's being conscious about let's see the origins of a recipe having reverence and respect for the origins of a recipe you know you can take that recipe and make it your own but it's still having reverence for where it came from um just being in that moment right being present when you're working with ingredients enjoying the beauty of that ingredient and then enjoying another culture to me that is being completely aware of what it is you're cooking in your kitchen and what it is you end up putting in your mouth author and atlanta chef asha gomez her recent book is i cook in color bright flavors from my kitchen and around the world you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of atlanta arts and culture summer evans is city lights producer shelly canavy is our engineer and i'm your host lois rights i would love it if you'd follow me on twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.